What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today guests who have been on the show to do fantastic podcasts in the past about regional anesthesia, doctors Kara Segna and Hassan Reyes. And we are going to do another great regional episode, this time on truncal blocks. So I am thrilled to say welcome back to the show, Hassan and Kara. Thank you for having us back, Jed. We're thrilled to reconnect with all the ACRAC listeners out there. Yes, thank you, Jed, so much for having us back. Today, My pleasure. Today, we're going to discuss truncal blocks, and that's going to include the rectus sheath block, transversus abdominis plane block, quadratus lumborum, and a rectus spinae block. And for anybody listening that's interested, we have attached images of all four of these blocks for your reference on the website. Now, right. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes. Great. Now, in regards to the ITE and board exam, which we really, really love to touch on for our podcast, the rectus sheath and the tap or transverse abdominis plane, I'm going to call it tap from now on, are most likely to be covered of these four blocks. The quadratus lumborum and the erector spinae are pretty new, so they, um, they, they still need research and outcomes before they will make it onto any testing. Modality. Great. Well, I like it. So we're going to cover some that are uh, more established and definitely will come up on tests and then kind of newer, um, you know, kind of uh, more trendy blocks that uh, if they catch on, will come up on tests in a few years. So that's a great combination. So Kara, why don't we start off with the rectus sheath block? You want to tell us about that? Of course. So the rectus sheath block was first described in 1899. So it's been around about, you know, over 100 years. And wow. it was initially used for the purpose of abdominal wall muscle relaxation during laparotomy. Because at that time, neuromus- neuromuscular drugs, the blocking drugs like rocuronium, sucks, they didn't exist yet. So um, a rectus sheath block is the most limited abdominal block that we have 
um, as it only provides intra-op and post-op analgesia for the midline abdominal incisions. So cases where this would be useful are those such as umbilical hernias, epigastric hernias, um, abdominoplasty, anything with a midline incision. Great. And so what is, so this is called the rectus sheath block. You know, let's just go basic here. What is the rectus sheath? So the rectus sheath is a large um, fibrous structure. It actually encloses the um, three main rectus abdominis muscles. So from the most superficial, it's the external oblique, and then the next level down, internal oblique, and then the third is the transverse abdominis muscle. So what the rectus sheath is, is the most superficial external oblique and the top portion of the internal oblique. And then the, the bottom part of the sheath is going to be the bottom part of the internal oblique mixing with the um, rectus abdominis muscle. So the fibers kind of interlace together, and that's where you see the, the linea alba in the middle, though there's no nerve innervation there. Great. So am I thinking about this correctly, Kara? Is it kind of like these three muscles are encased in a, almost a sack of their own or a, you know, a fascial kind of bag of their own or no? Is, are we just calling this a sheath, but there's not actually a substance enclosing all three of these? It, it's more like their fascia, like the fascia of all three, the aponeurosis, the end of them just kind of mix together and kind of hold everything in place. Okay. Um, that's helpful. Great. And so how does the block itself work? What do you do? So the goal of the rectus sheath block, and, and Hassan will talk about how you do it in just a minute, is to block the terminal branches of the 9th, 10th, and 11th intercostal nerves. These run in between the internal oblique and the transversus abdominis muscle to penetrate the posterior wall of the rectus abdominis muscle and end in the anterior cutaneous branch, supplying the skin of the umbilical area. Okay, so that's the anatomy. And then what do you want to be, uh, as you said, Hazan was talking about how to do it. Before we get there, what do you want to think about in terms of complications from this block? Yes, so the superior and inferior epigastric vessels, as well as the terminal parts of the inferior five intercostal and subcostal vessels are located within the rectus sheath. So intravascular injection is definitely possible, as well as accidentally needling into the peritoneum because it's so close. It's right underneath the aponeurosis. Okay. And then uh, my, my next question, which I'm sure Hassan will address when we talk about how to do it, is do you do this with an ultrasound to try to avoid those complications? But I'll, I'll turn to Hassan. Um, and Kara, that was great background information. So Hassan, if you actually want to do this block, how do you do it? All right. Thanks, Jed. So you'll place your ultrasound probe at the midline of the abdomen in the transverse position. You identify the rectus abdominis muscle sitting on what looks like a double fascial layer. Uh, you scan laterally from there to find where the muscle gives way to the transverses abdominis, internal and external oblique muscles. Uh, at that point, you advance your needle into the lateral aspect of the rectus abdominis muscle and inject between the muscle and that double layer lying uh, below the muscle. Okay, so you're, um, you're injecting into the fascial layer. That's, that's that double layer is a layer of fascia. So you'll inject right above that double layer, and it's okay. in between the muscle itself and the double layer, uh, because that's where those uh, anterior rami and the, the nerves run. Okay, and, and what really probe are you using? Is this a, sorry, what was that, Kara? 
There's a really good picture um, that is going to be on the website where you can see where the local anesthesia goes, which pushes the muscle up from the fascia. Great. And is this is done with the linear probe or what probe do you use? That's a good question. So basically it depends on body habitus for adults. I think in most peds blocks, you can use a linear array probe, the high frequency probe that you're used to using. Um, you know, it, I'd be hard pressed to find a, a patient who's, who's large enough to use a curvilinear probe with something this superficial, but um, certainly when you get to get into bariatric surgery and uh, much larger patients, you may have to use a curvilinear probe, uh, which is a low frequency probe. Okay. So it depends on your, your patient population. All right. So this is the uh, rectus sheath block. How does that compare to a tap block? And when would you think there was an advantage of doing a tap block over a rectus sheath block? So the tap block actually covers um, way more as far as like um, pain is concerned. The tap block is is brand brand new pretty much compared to the rectus sheath block. It was introduced about 20 years ago in 2001. And if you find the rectus sheath and you do that block, if you just move laterally um, down the abdomen towards the spine, that's where you will see the three muscle layers. So no longer their aponeurosis, but the actual three muscle layers. Um, And you would inject medication right um, between the internal and transverse abdominus muscle. So So just like the way the tap block works, is that it provides somatic anesthesia of the abdominal wall at the T6 to T9 dermatomes for the subcostal tap block, as well as, and then um, the lateral tap block, you've got to do two, is T10 to L1. It, um, do you want to talk about the pain decreasing? Uh, yeah, so it's, so essentially there, if you do the subcostal tap block, you cover T6 to T9 dermatomes, um, and what Kara means by if you do, you got to do two is that T6 through T9 dermatomes means you cover the upper half of the abdomen. If you do the lateral tap block, you can get the rest of it, T10 through L1. Um, obviously, if you have incisions in one or in only one of those areas, you would do only one of those blocks to, to cover that area. And Hassan, uh, remind, remind us, non-regional uh, folks who may be rusty, um, the T6 to T9, we're talking about, you know, where on the abdomen, from where to where about, and then same with T10 to L1. Isn't the belly button T10, is that right? Right. So that's a nice landmark for T10. T6 to T9 is going to be sub-siphoid to right above the umbilicus, above the belly button. And then uh, T10 through L1 is going to be belly button to uh, the inguinal crease. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, so the tap block has been shown to be an easy way to quickly decrease pain scores on an average of 20 to 30% and can be used for abdominal surgeries when, abdom- when uh, another procedure like an epidural is not an option due to situations like anticoagulation issues or outpatient surgery. Um, so the tap blocks will block innervation on the skin, muscles, and parietal peritoneum, uh, but if it's, it won't reliably block visceral pain, which is that internal crampy pain, um, just just the incision, basically. That's And when I talk to patients, that's how I describe it. It's going to help with the cuts on the skin, but not that internal pain. And I just wanted to put it, put it out there. Compared to the other blocks, the other peripheral blocks, you know, those will take away 
100% of the pain most of the time. That's the design of it. This, like Hassan said, it only takes it down 20 to 30%. So tap locks are mostly um, used in a part of a multimodal pain management system where you wanna try to limit narcotics and lean on as many things as you can. Um, it's very safe, it's easy and it's effective. And um, it's something that we've adopted a, a lot here at Hopkins. Yeah, it's especially good for a lot of our enhanced recovery after surgery uh, pathways. Great. Is it now, you know, when I think of an epidural, I think you can leave a catheter in there. How about a tap lock? Do you ever leave a catheter or is it always a single shot block? So you can leave a catheter. That is something that that can be done. It's just that tap locks are very volume dependent. So you have to be able to um, make sure that you don't reach a, a toxic dosing of local anesthesia. And sometimes it, it actually works better if you can hand bolus um, as opposed to leaving like a trickle through the cap, through the um, the pump. So it's possible, they, but they can fall out easy. And and if they, and, you know, and the workaround for, you know, if you don't have the manpower uh, to hand bolus is that certain pumps do have the ability to PCA bolus. Um, and uh, you could potentially use that, uh, you know, there are so many companies and formulations and things out there to, to do that. Um, you know, you're just uh, uh, contact the people in your institution to kind of figure out uh, what your options are. Great. All right. So what kind of surgery would you utilize a tap lock for? So tap locks are a great option for cases such as major abdominal surgery, where you have um, surgical cuts on both sides of the abdomen or even a single side. You could just do a one-sided tap lock. Um, so that would be colorectal surgeries, hernia repairs, and um, lately um, cesarean sections have been a, a place where we have been doing tap blocks to help, especially for people who um, have had to have general anesthesia and can't utilize their epidural for post-op. Great. Are there any significant complications that folks should be aware of? Um, complications related to tap blocks are rare as this block is performed in a way that peripheral nerves are not targeted. It relies on a spread of high volume local anesthetic, which bathe the nerves. So you have to pay particular attention, as I said before, to the weight of the patient to avoid administering toxic dosing. Um, with this block, you also have to think about the standard contraindications, such as patient refusal or infection over the site. Great. So let's just touch base about that because I think it's significant. You, am I right that common uh, local anesthetic would be bupivacaine here or ropivacaine? Yes, because that will last the longest, and we um, typically use quarter percent of both of those drugs. And you want to just say quickly how you think about toxic dosing for um, for at least for bupivacaine or maybe for both? Um, sure. So we have a, an app called uh, Safe Local that we use that Hopkins developed. But in general, if you just like everybody kind of has their own answer here. But me personally, for bupivacaine, um, two milligrams per kilogram without epi, 2.5 with ropivigine, um without epi, three milligrams per kilogram and 3.5 with epi. But depending on where you look, you'll see kind of slightly different numbers, but all within the same general ballpark. Yeah, okay. What I find for uh, trainees, kind of a nice rule of thumb is, uh, you know, if your toxic dose is 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, um, then you can actually just uh, for a quarter percent uh, bupivacaine you can just look at the number of kilograms 
uh, for the patient, and that's the number of milliliters or cc's that you can use. It's a nice right. order. I remember that being really easy. So uh, if you're using quarter percent bupivacaine, you can just say, all right, patient weighs 80 kilos, we can use 80 cc's max. Um, and if you were doing both sides, you could do a max of 40 per side, right? Right. And uh, if you're using half percent, then you just cut that number in half. So if they were 80 kilos, then you could use 40 cc's. Great. Um, all right. So anything that this seems like a pretty, it's becoming a very common block. I would imagine this gets tested. What's important to know about the TAP block for the ITE and the board, but, you know, basic and advanced exams? Sure. So the more heavily tested is the lateral TAP block, and it's performed between the costal margin and the iliac crest. It is very important for you guys to review the imaging because you need to be able to label an image that has the three layers on it because they can ask you which layer is which and where would you put the local anesthetic, for example. So I have a couple of questions that I will I'll ask Hassan here and I'll let him um, answer. And this would be a typical question. So Hassan, um, what is the order from outside to inside of the muscle layers of the abdominal wall when doing a tap block? So from uh, most superficial to most uh, uh, deep, you'd have the external oblique, the internal oblique, and then the transversus abdominis muscle. And which layer do you deposit the local anesthetic? You deposit it between the uh, internal oblique and the transversus abdominis muscle. And um, what type of analgesia will this block produce? So like what dermatomes? So like we talked about earlier, and this is pretty heavily tested, uh, T10 through T12, the lateral approach, um, and L1 uh, by the more anterior approach. Um, on the test, they may simplify it to just T10 through L1 for the lateral tap block. Okay. Now, what, let me just remember, I, I thought we had said actually that it um, went a little higher for the, uh, for the in, uh, couldn't it go up to T6? Didn't we say T6 to T9 before? Uh, that was the, uh, yes. Yes. If you're, if you're going to be blocking the two tap plexuses. But we're, for on the test, they, they tend to um, basically just test this lateral approach. So it, it's a little complicated, but the test leans on this one specifically. So they'd have to say, though, that this is a, either show you a picture of going in the lateral position or they would have to tell you it's a lateral approach, right, in order for you to, to know it's, you're only going from T10 down to L1. Yeah, and I would basically... So the, the reason why this, the lateral approach is emphasized is it was described first. Okay. Um, yeah, and the, so the original one without an ultrasound, but it was still landmark. Yeah. And so if you get a question on the uh, test about a tap block, I would assume it's the lateral approach and it's the T10 through L1 um, dermatomes that are covered. If they specifically talk about the subcostal approach, it's a little bit higher, as you would surmise, and uh, you'd get a um, little bit higher dermatomes, T6 through T9. As we okay, saw. great. So if they don't specify, assume it's the lateral approach, T10 to L1. If they say it's the subcostal approach or show you a subcostal approach, then you can say it would be T6 to T9. That's right. All right, great. Let's move on to the quadratus lumborum, or I think it can be known as the QL nerve block. Hassan, you want to tell us about this one? 
Right. And this is where we we're going a little bit past the kind of what's more commonly tested. And uh, just for, you know, helping our patients from a clinical perspective, these are a little bit newer. Um, so we're going a little bit far, uh, pretty far posterior, closer to the spine. And so uh, it may help to have your patient in lateral position for these. Um, the QL muscle is located dorsolateral to the psoas major muscle, just lateral to the spine. Uh, in fact, it even attaches to the transverse processes of the spine. Um, the nice part of this block is that you can potentially cover uh, T6 through L1 dermatomes innervated by the anterior and lateral uh, cutaneous branches of the intercostal nerves. Um, so it can kind of be the, quote, shotgun block for the, for the entire abdomen uh, in that sense. Interesting. So it uh, sounds like it should definitely be worth learning about. How do we do them? There are three different approaches to this block um, and that are based on anatomic location, which your local anesthetic is deposited. Uh, the QL1 or lateral quadratus lumborum block requires you to scan posteriorly until you see the transition between the transverses abdominis muscle and the QL muscle. The transversalis fascia that surrounds the transverses abdominis will help form the thoracolumbar fascia that surrounds the QL muscle. Your local anesthetic in this approach is then injected at the epineurotic attachment of the transverses abdominis muscle between the transverses abdominis muscle and the QL muscle. Uh, for the QL2, your local anesthetic is deposited more posteriorly uh, between the QL muscle and the posterior muscles of the back, like the erector spinae, latissimus dorsi, or serratus posterior muscle, depending on uh, where you are in the back. The final approach, and probably for more advanced practitioners, and so, you know, I'd, um, I'd caution against just kind of, kind of winging this one um, without a more um, experienced person with you, is a QL3, um, and it's your local anesthetic is deposited between the QL and psoas muscles. Um, and uh, it's more advanced because uh, it's uh, just a much deeper block. Um, and because of how deep it is, I'd consider the patient's anticoagulation status and bleeding risk prior to attempting it. Yeah, that's a great point. And let me, that reminds me, Hassan, to ask you for the prior blocks we've talked about, the uh, rectus sheath block and the tap block, do you worry about anticoagulation status? They're actually relatively uh, superficial, and because they're plain blocks, um, you know, even if there's hematoma formation there, uh, it's you're not at uh, such high risk of compressing a large peripheral nerve that causes uh, motor dysfunction or something like that. Um, so, and that's actually one of the assets of something like a tap block where anticoagulation can preclude you from doing an epidural, but with an abdominal uh, incision, you can still proceed with a, with a tap block. Okay, so that one you can do, but the QL3, uh, you would probably not. Right, and the problem with the QL3 is that it's, it's deep, and uh, if you go into the psoas muscle where the lumbar plexus lives, if there's hematoma formation there that compresses the lumbar plexus, that could be a big deal. And uh, we, we don't want to get into that situation. Great. All right. So um, what else? Do we want anything else about this, Kara? Anything um, that comes up on exams? Uh, this block will very, very likely not show up on your exams yet. Not your oral boards or your OSCEs, nothing. It is brand new, and it is still being um, heavily researched. Great. Even though All right. we have found a lot of good success with it. 
Yeah, know. that's a, that's great. I'm sure this will become um, more and more used and therefore will probably show up uh, on tests. So the last block uh, that you guys mentioned is the erector spinae plane, or I think it can be known as ESP block. Hassan, uh, what is this block all about? All right, so the ESP block is a paraspinal block. We're going to stay on the back here, uh, but we're going to move up to the upper back. Um, and, uh, and so in, uh, with this particular block, local anesthetic is injected between the erector spinae muscle and the transverse process. Um, it has been used for posterior rib fractures and anterior chest wall procedures, among other indications. Its mechanism of action uh, still isn't very well defined as it's a fairly new block. Possible explanations include anterior diffusion um, of local anesthetic into the paravertebral space or interfascial spread towards the posterior rami and spinal nerves. In my experience, it seems to work best for sensory coverage on the upper back. Okay. It seems like there are still a lot of questions about this block. As you said, we're not even sure exactly how it works. Um, do you think it's worth investigating this further? Does this add anything uh, that we don't get from other blocks? So even if it only provides sensory coverage for the back, it is still a relatively safe block and a viable alternative for more invasive procedures like epidurals that are um, contraindicated for anticoagulated patients. And um, it's, I, I have found it has been a really great rescue block for things such as chest tubes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, you could do this, I'm assuming, based on what you just said, this is another one you can do in a patient who's anticoagulated. Yes. Okay. Great. So how would you do this block if you wanted to give it a shot? And by the way, we should just say, hopefully it goes without saying, that uh, you should always, of course, uh, follow your institutional protocol about which blocks can be done, which ones you're uh, credentialed to do. Um, so these are things that if you're a trainee, you could bring up with your attending, uh, your block attending, and see if they're comfortable doing them with you. But uh, certainly we don't advocate going out and just giving these a try uh, if you don't know what you're doing. All right. So how do we do this one? Yeah, and the, uh, I mean, hopefully you don't do any block without knowing what you're doing. Uh, the, uh, um, and when we introduce newer blocks, uh, anytime, I'll just say in general, when you image the back, um, it, I would say that that's more of an intermediate level uh, skill set. And so it's really important uh, if you can, even if you're not doing this block, if you can image the back under ultrasound to just understand what you're looking at in normal patients, that's a nice way to start before you try to attend putting needles uh, in any way. Absolutely. Um, so as far as this block goes, uh, have the patient set up like they would for an epidural. Uh, locate the area you'd like to anesthetize first. Um, so if your patient has posterior rib fractures at around T5, for example, then you can place your ultrasound probe in the sagittal position at that level. You identify the uh, transverse processes uh, at that uh, level. And the uh, erector spinae uh, will uh, run uh, immediately superficial to the transverse process there. You deposit your local anesthetic between the erector spinae muscle and the transverse process um, and eliciting good left to right spread on the screen, which in all actuality, anatomically speaking, in the sagittal view is cephalad and caudad spread. Um, and uh, the nice part of uh, doing the erector spinae block uh, with this approach is that the transverse process provides uh, a safety net to protect you from advancing your needle into the pleura, especially as you start learning how to do this block. Great. So what, what complications do you think of? I mean, it sounds like it's a fairly safe block. Anything that, that people should know about? 
Yeah, so a lot uh, uh, like the other uh, fascial plane blocks we've talked about today, uh, making sure you manage your uh, volumes because these are all volume blocks. Make sure you don't cross uh, um, local anesthetic uh, toxic doses. Um, aspirate every five centimeters, uh, even though um, you know we don't see large blood vessels um, in, uh, in the area, like say the subclavian artery or axillary artery for other blocks. Um, there are still blood vessels present um, and you want to make sure that you're not directly injecting into a blood vessel. Um, and as far as uh, other uh, risks for this, if you're having trouble visualizing your, your bony structures and landmarks, then there is a risk that you can move past those and go into the lungs um, and cause a pneumothorax um, like you would a paravertebral. And, and that's... Um, um, that's, that's not great. Uh, other than that though, it, it, it is a fairly, it is a fairly uh, a safe block. Um, great, and now, it sounds like it's still pretty new, so I'm assuming this probably isn't gonna come up on tests, is that right? Right, I wouldn't expect it on tests. And um, I'd also add from the safety profile, uh, because it is so new, it's not like we have had enough time to, to have a, a look large enough experience with it that we've had several case reports talking about uh, plural injection or risks or any of that. And so, you know, keep, keep that in mind as you um, try doing any new blocks. Great. All right. This was great. Really nice review of these blocks. I uh, appreciate it. Anything you guys want to add? Um. Nothing really to add about these blocks specifically, but please check out the pictures. We have some really beautiful ones that we um, found for you of all of these blocks and where the local anesthetic goes. And it's, it's a big range. It's ultrasound pictures as well as um, like drawn pictures and everything is labeled. And I think it'll be very helpful, especially the rectus sheets and the tap pictures for your exam. Awesome. And, and, and it ends up on the OSCE a lot too for your oral boards. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And I, go ahead, Hassa. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, just for the references, uh, you know, I just like to give credit where credit's due. I mean, um, NYSORA does a great job. Uh, you can, we're not Hopkins affiliated at all. We just like to give credit uh, to people who do good work. Um, they have great stuff online that's accessible to everybody. Um, ASRA, uh, the National Society for Regional Anesthesia, um, Gray's Atlas of Ultrasound Guided Regional Anesthesia is a terrific resource as well. Um, not Gray's Anatomy, although it's, it, it is technically a book about Gray's approach to regional anatomy, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, it's a great resources. Um, and there are so many uh, out there, but we use those as major references for this. Thanks, Hassan. And I just have to give a shout out to Andy Gray, who writes that book and who was uh, my attending when I was a resident at San Francisco General Hospital and was just a an unbelievable wealth of knowledge about regional anesthesia. He knew every little detail of anatomy. It was unbelievable and it was so helpful. Plus, he was just a wonderful guy and a wonderful teacher. And I'll tell you, we one time, I don't remember if we actually did it, but he proposed that we block the nerve of Henley in a patient. And I had no idea what that was. Turns out the nerve of Henley is the nerve that provides innervation to the ulnar 
artery, I believe, or maybe it was a radial artery. I don't remember. All I remember, it was the most obscure thing. No one else knew, but he knew. And uh, it was, I think, for some sort of either fistula or maybe even just for an A-line placement or something. And he proposed this. And I just thought, wow, you really do know every little nerve in the human body. So uh, shout out to Andy Gray. If he's uh, ever listens to this, I hope uh, he knows he's made a great impression on a lot of trainees over the years. All right. So why don't we turn to the portion of our show where we talk about random recommendations. Uh, you guys uh, have something you'd like to recommend to the audience? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I've been doing much more uh, reading during COVID era. Um, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi is pretty good, I think, in light of all the social issues and everything going on. Um, I don't try to be overly political. Um, you know, I try not to lean one way or the other, just try to think as independently as possible. But I think it provides a nice um, kind of background of kind of social history uh, that builds on one of his previous books and uh, talks a little bit about policy. So some of the people who are more ignorant and uninformed like me uh, can get kind of um, an idea about our national history through through one lens and um, what's going on in the world today. And uh, I, I've learned a lot from it. Um, and I, I'd highly recommend it. Awesome. Thanks, Hassan. We'll put a link in the show notes and what a, an incredibly important topic and subject. So thanks for that recommendation. Uh, Kara, how about you? Um, so while Hassan has been doing important things and reading, I've been watching junk TV, I think like a lot of people in this country. And I've been really delving into the Australian shows, such as Instant Hotel, which is awesome. It is just basically Airbnbs, but super fancy. And it's just, and they compete over who has the fanciest Airbnb. It's wonderful. And shows like Love Island, um, where there's a bunch of couples get together. Anyway, it's fun to listen to their, um, the type of words they use that are like different from us and their accents and what looking at views of the Gold Coast. I mean, it's just, I have a good time watching Australian TV now. <laughs> That's awesome. And we've got a lot of Australian listeners. I really love the emails I get from folks in Australia. And if uh, our Australian uh, fans are listening, you, there you go. Let us know what you think about Kara's uh, show choice. If you want to recommend any other Australian shows to her, you can post it in the uh, comment section. And I will say, I would, I would um, love that. I would love that. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I've been meaning for a while to, to make this. I think most people probably already know about this, but I can't recommend highly enough the website, The Wire Cutter. Uh, it is, I think, owned by the New York Times, but it's an incredible resource. If you're looking to buy, initially it was mostly just tech stuff. Now it's almost anything. And they do an incredible job of reviewing. So, for example, anything from, a tape measure. I recently bought a tape measure. It was based on their recommendation. We've bought luggage based on their recommendation. Uh, we've got uh, inflator pumps for car tires and, you know, almost anything you can think of. Uh, they recommend laptops, laptop cases, cell phone cases, uh, anything that certainly anything tech related and a lot of other things. Um, and they, they really do a great job. They're not, uh, you know, uh, they don't make any of this stuff, so they're not trying to sell you anything. They just do a great job of reviewing it. They review, they try on the, all the, if it's running shoes, they try on all the different shoes. They go running in them. They, you know, tell you wh how they chose their top picks and why, what the advantage is. And they even take cost into account. So they'll 
they'll say, you know, for the money, this is the best one. Sometimes they have a budget pick and then an upgrade pick. It's an incredible resource, and I've never been let down by going with their recommendation. So high, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not getting any money from them and have no affiliation with them, but it's a great, great resource if you're looking to buy something. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming back on the show, and we'll have you back on soon to do more regional podcasts. Thank you so much, Jed. We really love doing this with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Jed. All right. That was great. Hopefully you found it useful too. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment that others can learn from. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can join the Facebook group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider either going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show by pledging a certain amount per episode, and uh, we'd really appreciate that. If you would rather make a donation either one time or whenever you want, you can either go to Venmo and look up Jay Wolpaw, J-W-O-L-P-A-W, or you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and have become patrons. It makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, our prior social media manager who still helps out making some of the outlines for the website. We've got a great team, and they are fantastic. Thanks, as always, to Dr. Dennis Kuo, who composed our original ACRAG music, you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Hassan Reyes and Kara Segna, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.